here is a warning before this podcast episode as we discuss mental health and some listeners may find parts of the podcast both upsetting and distressing. Thank you. Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Legal Wolf podcast designed to raise awareness of mental health and also challenge the stigma of mental health not only within the UK where I'm based but around the world. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Grant, a in-house lawyer and workplace mental health advocate all the way from New Zealand. Kia ora Grant. Thank you. So, first of all, just for the listeners, would you be able to give a bit of background as to what what you do and who you are? Sure thing. So, I am a, a Kiwi, um, born and bred in New Zealand. My um, my heritage is uh, is in England and Wales, but. Um, it's been a few generations since uh, since my family have been up your way. Um, so I was born in New Zealand, um, grew up in a small farming town called Hamilton, studied there at the, the local university, and then um, for <laughs> for better or worse, uh, picked up a career as a as a lawyer. I spent a few years in a, in a, in a law firm in Wellington, um, moved off. To, to Australia when I got the chief feet and then I went in-house. So Telstra in Australia asked me to work for them just on a secondment basis. That was a six-month deal and then that became 12 months and then it became six years and I never went back to that poor law firm who said yes to them. Um, but, yeah, so I spent some time in Australia and then um, came back to New Zealand where I've sort of settled um, or resettled permanently and I've been here since about 2015. Okay. And... In terms of mental health within New Zealand, um, what is the current situation in regards to mental health and what made you become a workplace mental health advocate? Yeah, look, I think, I think New Zealand is facing, as with all of the Anglosphere countries, in many ways we're facing a first world problem one of the, the big first world problems, which is mental health and well-being. Um, you know, and I think that's um, because we're at a different area when it comes to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're struggling to find your next meal, you've got a whole different set of worries. And so, um, you know, it, it is a big issue for New Zealanders. Um, yeah. We are great at... Uh, <laughs> we're great at um, rugby and we're great at... <laughs> sailing apparently and we're also unfortunately really great at youth suicide and our statistics are some of the worst in the OECD and so um, you know youth suicide's an issue in New Zealand um, as it is in the UK yep. and our men in particular uh, in New Zealand are struggling our Maori people are struggling um, and so those rates those statistics don't paint a very pretty picture and so every year we lose you know, roughly just about double the road toll in New Zealand to suicide. So it's a it's a wow. big problem. It's something that's been affecting New Zealanders for many years. It's something that our Kiwi culture, which is you know very one, of, it's very much one of stoicism and independence and courage, but it also means uh, 
I think, a special risk factor for Kiwis because it's very hard um, for people to feel safe and comfortable to share how they're really doing. And that acts as a massive barrier to people asking for help. And you asked why I got into this space. So I've, I've lost a couple of people uh, in my world. One, when I was a teenager and not really... Um, not really tooled up, not really equipped to be able to deal with that. And so I just, you know, packaged that up as a 16-year-old and, you know, tried to move on but didn't really um, face into that as a young person. And, you know, I think it, um, when you think about your time at high school, I'm, I'm 40 now or 41. <laughs> they were a lie, lie by my age in public. Um, but you know, in the in the in the nineties, when I was through high, talking about mental health and well-being, you know, if you if you had a good PE teacher, there was a few condoms on bananas, but that was about as far as it went, and they, they really didn't get into teaching people a, even a basic emotional literacy, and so that I think didn't set me up for success around being able to work through and address the the grief um, and the distress that I went through at that time. And so I kind of put that to one side, moved on. And when I was at Telstra in Australia, I worked with a very incredible leader um, in that legal team there. And, you know, there's some big, big companies in Australia. Telstra is a bit like the BT of Australia. Okay. And um, they had 200 lawyers inside the company. And one of those lawyers was Lucy Sedgwick. And she was just an incredible person so I, um, I'll, I'll be fine I just struggle to just work through this without letting my emotions run freely so um, I worked with her for about six years you know within a couple of meters of each other at times and in about December 2014 just before Christmas we had a good catch-up we, we were good workmates we weren't you know close friends outside of work but we were pretty close at work and we caught up just before Christmas for about half an hour, 40 minutes. Um, and she um, spent that whole time lifting me up. She was a, a, lead, a lead lawyer, one of the most senior lawyers at, um, one of the more senior lawyers at Telstra and had a team of high-performing lawyers under her. They were kicking goals in Australia's highest court, doing great things. Um, but, you know, underneath that, she wasn't doing okay. And... I think on reflection, if I had had the knowledge and the skills and the confidence that I have now, we would have had such a different conversation. So within weeks of um, her having a catch up with me pre-Christmas, she had died um, by suicide. And then I was left within a few weeks after that, standing up at a conference that she'd organised, a legal conference in Melbourne, Australia. And it was very tough yeah. having to to be there at the at the more than a lawyer conference that she had organised when she wasn't there. And you know, like I I spent a large chunk of time. <laughs> I was I was invited to speak on legal innovation, and yeah. um, I spent my time on that. But at the end, I spent a few minutes just um, honouring honouring her. It was just two or three minutes, and yeah. everyone. Everyone at the end of that session, <laughs> they, didn't really, they didn't really care about the uh, legal <laughs> they, they just wanted to have a chat about Lucy. And so that kind of 
you know, it soaked in a little bit, and, and, and within two months after that, I was back in New Zealand um, for, for family reasons, came back home as a real draw to, to home. Um, and so came back to New Zealand, and I guess I'd just quietly... I don't even, I don't even know if it was conscious, but I believe that I made a decision that I was not going to work somewhere that said nothing and did nothing about mental health. And so that's really what started my workplace mental health journey. It was a very long answer. No, but no, no, no need to apologize at all. It's a very powerful and emotional story to tell. And I know over in the UK, we have problems with mental health in the workplace, particularly within the legal profession with all the myths and stereotypes that are out there around lawyers and having this stiff upper lip which tends to be a a British thing that we just carry on and how can we change the way that we discuss mental health within the workplace Grant because something needs to be done about it yeah look I, and I just want to, I just want to pause there and comment. You know, I feel like, you know, the UK has a lot to answer for. That stiff upper lip has been inherited in New Zealand and ruggedized a bit. And so, yeah. as I said at the very start, I, I believe that our Kiwi culture and then our Kiwi workplace culture, and then overlaid on that, the culture within the legal profession within professional workplaces generally you know like engineering um accounting consultancy medicine law those environments overlay an entirely new or different set of risk factors so if you think about yourself as a lawyer we're trained to put our black hat on we're trained to critically analyze we're trained to think of every (laughs) every bad thing that could go wrong you know um, if you if you take the helicopter up really high, you know, we are paid to manage fear. Yeah. And so everything that you and I do in our in our personal world and our work world, every decision we make about the experiences that we are having and the things we're encountering, we are we are in a way we're either doing a fear reaction or a love reaction. And so the whole <laughs> legal profession is built on fear. And that again, it kind of gets in the skin a little bit. And so those feelings of um, the need to be perfect, the need to be, um, because people are relying on you and you don't want to let them down. And so you've got to be Superman or Wonder Woman. You've got to be unbreakable. And those pressures, those don't just come from without, they come from within. Um, But how we think about ourselves as lawyers, how we think about ourselves as professionals within a workplace and what it means for us to be vulnerable, what it means for us to admit we don't know something or make a mistake, to celebrate our epic fails. That is something that I think could be quite groundbreaking for us uh, as professionals to, to really dig in and say, are we really perfect? Because, you know, you might think you're Superman or Wonder Woman and you might think you're unbreakable until you're not yeah. and until you do break. Well, and so that's what I see within within um, the the professional workplace in particular, um, and I, I I see a massive massive opportunity for employers, um, even just 
you know, not just in the legal profession. You know, the legal profession's got this unique swirling morass of power and perfectionism and pressure and personalities, and that can come together in a way that's quite unhealthy unless we act with intentionality, unless we design a more healthier way of connecting and working together within those workplaces. So that's something for the, the, the legal profession in particular to be mindful of, but also other professions. This is not unique to the law. Um, but I think there's a massive opportunity for us to change the way that we talk about and address mental health at work. You know, you, you can't just wait for the government. You can't wait for the next wellbeing yeah. budget. You can't wait for, um, you know, public health, workplaces have a massive role to play, right? They've got yep. HR departments, health and safety, learning and development budgets. They command sometimes tens of thousands of people and and sometimes don't realise and take hold of the fact that they could be a massive protective factor for their staff. Um, and so that's that's really, I think, that's the role workplaces can play. It's transformational. They can They can change the game for the well-being of thousands of their workers and all of the people around them at home and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the legal profession, the fact that there is that idea that we have to be perfect um, and you're completely right, the higher you, you go up, you're managing fear. Do you reckon that comes down to all of the... So in the UK, we have a lot of audits for law firms that we have to pass in order to continue practising as a, as a law firm. Do you reckon some of the fear comes from those kind of audits and assessments that law firms have to undertake? Look, I, th I think that's right. I'm, I'm, I, I have to say, I'm not... I'm not super close to the regulatory regime in the UK for law yeah. firms themselves, but certainly in New Zealand at that individual level, every year I have to complete a fit and proper declaration to retain my practicing certificate as a lawyer. And so yeah. on that, I have to say, have I got any mental health problems or addictions really? or other issues that might mean that I mightn't be fit to be a lawyer and so and it's the same with the medical profession in new zealand every single year we have to declare that we are healthy whole and entirely you know ready to roll when from a mental health perspective and so that in and of itself at an individual level can make someone who has experienced trauma or is going through a situation of severe mental distress yep. that adds a whole nother layer of complexity over how they how open they can be to getting help, to, to sharing how they're really doing and and discovering the right support pathways for them. It's it's a yeah. I think I think we have to be very careful how we do that because what we do is we we basically say, <laughs> you know, tell us tell us all, um, and that might be a Damoclean sword. And so you can imagine the impact that has on someone deciding whether to be really open about the fact that they're struggling with depression i'd better not yeah. i'd better just keep, I'll, I'll just push through that's the kiwi way just push through harden up take a concrete pill you'll be fine 
just keep going. And I think it can make us really brittle as, as humans if we don't get the help that we need early, right? That is, you know, all the yeah. research. <laughs> and a lot of the research is just coming out of the UK. Yeah. You know, we are way behind. Uh, I think we're sort of trying to catch up. <laughs> New Zealand, always trying to catch up with you guys. But, um, you know, the research is suggesting that the faster that you get the right support, the more whole, the quicker, the more complete your recovery journey will be. And so, yeah, I don't love, I don't love those questions. Um, so that's certainly something for us to look at. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of educating employers, how could we educate employers into the importance of mental health and well-being? Look, I, I, I believe that everybody, every, everybody, you know, if you're breathing in and out rhythmically from time to time, then you have a role to play. Yeah. <laughs> like you have a, you know, as individuals, as families, as sports teams, as community groups, as churches and other faith groups, in the workplace, in our schools and government, local and national, we all have a role to play. And so I think it's a real mix. There's not just one thing. Yeah. I think there are a thousand different things that we could do. But, you know, I, I believe that, you know, it's become, it's become a lot easier to talk about mental health in New Zealand, but knowing what to do about it, knowing how we can smash the stigma, how we can yes. create meaningful, sustainable, positive impacts for our people, that's a whole other thing. But I think getting employers alive to the issue is the very first step. And, and not just alive to the issue, they can see the issue and they can think, oh, who are we? Who are we to get up and out the business of our staff? You know, we don't, we don't, this is their own personal information. This is their own private life sometimes. Yeah. And we, we just need to focus on what we can manage and that's, that's within the workplace. And I think that artificial um, splitting off of your work world and your home world, it's just so unrealistic. <laughs> like yeah. you don't turn up to work and then that argument with your partner that you had that morning or the child that is off the rails with a methamphetamine addiction or the financial distress that you're in for some reason because something's gone wrong with your finances. Yeah. None of that stuff we just leave at home. We can be forced to. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's a real it's a real opportunity for employers um, to take a proactive approach. Something, you know, I think the focus really needs to be on positive mental health, on what recognizing that four out of four of our people have got mental health, um, helping employers of any size recognize that you won't have sustainable, sustainable performance unless mental health and your overall well-being of your people is right in the heart of that. You can, you can, you know, if you look at that performance pressure curve, you can perform at kind of 11 out of 10 for a while. But eventually you fall off the other end into exhaustion and burnout and fatigue. And so that's just a little tiny sliver. But what else can employers do? How else can they make it easier for people with neurodiversity to get into the workforce, to feel like they belong there? Like, what are we doing around our hiring processes? How are we managing the life cycle of our employees so that we set them up 
we create an environment where they can thrive, we meet their needs. If they've got a disability of any kind, um, there is an incredible opportunity for employers if they can just open their eyes and get past, Steve, that fear response that I talked about. So many of these functions within workplaces are revolving around the management of fear and risk. And that is rightly so, right? We want workplaces that are sustainable, they're here for the long term, they're not doing high-risk stuff. We want to manage that really safely and supportively. But by not effectively addressing mental health in the workplace, employers are actually creating or allowing to remain and potentially get worse a significant health and well-being issue within their workforce. And so that is the benefit. And, you know, again, all of the stuff's being let out of the UK. The business case for better mental health is just a complete home run. Are you across some of the kind of research and studies that they've been doing around that? I'm not fully across it, but I do know that if you have a happy workforce, you get more productivity out of them. And if they are, if if they have good mental well-being, then obviously the more productive your staff are going to be and the more that they are going to perform for you. So the two certainly go hand in hand. So you've innately understood, you've naturally understood something that seems completely obvious <laughs> and it really is. So yeah. like... Um, I'm going to get the order wrong, probably. Is it the Stevenson's Farmer Stevenson's Farmer Report or Farmer Stevenson's Report in the UK? Um, Deloitte did a massive study, massive study on workplace um, mental health and the business benefits from creating a thriving workforce. And every dollar that you put in, you get £4.20 back. Yeah. In better productivity, better engagement, less presenteeism, less illness. It's it's massive and it runs across your whole workplace. So what you're doing by leaning into and facing into better mental health and well-being, you're doing the right thing, number one. Yeah. And that's the only reason that we ought to be doing this is, is the right thing. But there'll be a bean counter somewhere. <laughs> There'll be a bean counter somewhere in your workplace. You better believe it, that you will not have no accountants. There'll be there'll be accountants and finance people who, who have to make sure that this business or this government department is sustainable, that it's it's keeping to its budgets. And so financially, you know, the World Health Organization, it's a, a study they did, it's $4 US for every dollar you put in returned to the workplace from your investment in better mental health and well-being. Australia, PwC, $2.30 for every dollar you put in. New Zealand Mental Health Foundation's partnered with Zero, the global cloud accounting firm and accounting uh, platform, sorry. And $3.50 is your return on every dollar that you put into better workplace mental health and well-being. And so that stuff is significant. And by the way, your people will love it. (laughs) You know, your people will love it. There's an engagement piece to that, not just doing the right thing, not just seeing the business benefits, but having your people feel it, you know, reaching that, that last mile, which can be incredibly difficult in the workplace, especially if you're geographically distributed, so that people can really feel the love response 
when it comes to mental health. And by the way, it's the law. <laughs> like, and it's yeah. on the Health and Safety Work Act. So as a lawyer, you can lay down the law. This is great. One of the few times I get to really, you know, ring the bell for better mental health. You know, so there's a there's a number of different reasons, right? Um, so yeah, it's a it's a total home run. And so why why wouldn't you, as an employer, want to dig deep yeah. and to look really closely at what you can do? And and not to, I'm getting totally distracted here, but I hope I hope that someone here is listening to this podcast from a workplace, no matter how big or small, but you might be a leader in that workplace. You might be in the C-suite. You might have a C in front of your name, or you might be a people leader, or you might just be an individual contributor, but you'll recognize your mandate. I'm giving you permission to care um, wherever you are in your workplace about the people around you. Because you, you, you can't always change culture. This is all about workplace culture. You can't change that overnight. It's like Pantene. Yeah. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. And you can't change that overnight, but you can change um, your immediate team environment, which will already be impacting in a positive way the people around you, the people you see day to day, week to week. So, you know, I think and that, that reverberates, you know, that, that principle doesn't just apply in the workplace. But workplaces, I have seen so many stories, you know, in that typical Kiwi way of these very quiet victories. Nobody wants to stand up and be seen. Even when they're doing incredible stuff, people are embarrassed. (sighs) People are embarrassed to talk about it. (laughs) And so there there are workplaces in New Zealand that are just doing groundbreaking, groundbreaking work in the mental health area. But you'd never bloody know it. No. You'd never know because nobody, you know, it's, it's a, there's a thing in New Zealand called tall poppy syndrome. And it is a big thing here where nobody really wants to be lifted up and seen as successful. And so all of your victories are very quiet. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge thing. I, I could, I could share with you some just incredible stories of people who have stepped way outside their comfort zone. I'll share one with you now. Yeah, yeah, I, I have a hundred. <laughs> I work with this lady, um, still work with this lady, and she's just a normal person in an office environment, teenage kids, and she's one of our champions in the workplace. And so she's got a bit of that confidence, some of that knowledge, that skill, around mental health she's got some vocabulary and so um she has become a really effective bridge to support a really safe supportive bridge to support but you think well that's great in the workplace but none of that stuff none of the training and the learning and the mindset changes that you embed at work stay there all of your staff take it home with them to their to their families to their communities and so this woman, her um, teenage child's best mate, that realised that he wasn't okay and had gone missing, and so they figured out that he wasn't missing. That's a good thing, noticing. Um, and then they um, found him, went to the top floor of a car parking building in the CBD, and she she met this young man and gave him a hug, and kept him safe 
gave him some hope, kept herself safe, called emergency services. He stayed with their family for a few weeks at the start of his recovery journey. And so that that is the halo. That is the halo yeah. that you get from properly addressing mental health in the workplace, from investing in your people. It will wash out way outside what you think is the border of your workplace and into the lives of your people. Absolutely. And I know I was talking to a mental health advocate in Egypt earlier today who said to me about the task shifting principle that was brought in by Vikram Patel. And this mental health advocate is trying to bring it into workplaces in Egypt, whereby you're equipping managers of companies by education, giving them the tools to detect early signs of mental health and then to have the facility or option to be able to provide them with primary mental health care and services and support. And I feel that would be so beneficial if managers were given that opportunity to go that extra mile because they've been educated with the necessary tools to be able to identify when someone is suffering with their mental health and another thing that i have started to mention in recent podcast episodes is getting a mental health module on a national curriculum um within the uk or it could be any any country in the world and start the modules in primary school because it is easier to change someone's perception of mental health the younger you catch them whereas the older they get the more set in their ways they become and the more difficult it is to change people's perceptions of it i mean we've had a lot of that recently with black lives matter and i feel if if you start early enough then the future generation would come through more understanding more willing to talk out talk and help out in regards to mental health what are your thoughts on those two points grant i i couldn't agree more you know i i for some reason, I thought <laughs> rather jealously that the UK already had a an end-to-end mandatory evidence-based mental health and well-being curricula through, you know, primary, intermediate, and secondary schools over there. But if that's something you're not doing, it's something that I have been agitating for a little bit down here, um, okay. because I do think, you know, my my wheelhouse is within the workplace, <laughs> but we are having tens of thousands of young New Zealanders turning up into the workforce 
with very limited mental health vocabularies. Yeah. You know, they, they haven't got um, a good understanding of mental health and well-being on the pathways to support and the universality of mental health. Yeah. The fact that it is just like your physical health, they haven't got great coping strategies. They, they, they're not there yet and they're turning up without the right skills and knowledge into workplaces that are full of older people like me <laughs> <laughs> who don't know how to talk about how they're doing, who see mental health as a massive stigma. And so I don't love that. I don't love that. Yeah. And so, yeah, our education sector could play a massive role absolutely massive and if you come up with something in the uk you better believe that new zealand is going to steal that unashamedly <laughs> <laughs> because you know i i i say to workplaces you know we should be nailing this yeah. in our primary schools with age appropriate now this is not anti-suicide or suicide prevention training for five-year-olds this is age appropriate yeah. entirely safe evidence-based curricula for our young people that just steps them through so that by the time they're 13, 14, 15, they're really getting some really good news that they can use, some tools in their toolbox. Absolutely. Not just for dealing with trauma and distress and loss and setbacks, but also, you know, having, you know, that mental health vocabulary um, and also having a really healthy way of thinking about their own lives, their own personal value. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that that's not happening in New Zealand at the minute. We don't, we don't have anything. So if your pr high school principal happens to be totally sold out for better mental health, you might just be lucky enough to have something in your... And we've got a health curriculum and it, and it talks to mental health, but there's not a, a giant Vegas Lights you know, um, high-profile mandatory curricula that is setting our young people up for success. So we could do a lot more, and I completely agree with your... I think you said there was two points. I might have missed one of them. Yeah, but, no... Um, the, whatever you said, I agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, first point was when I had a conversation with a, a mental health advocate in Egypt about the Vikram Patel model, oh, yes. about task shifting. So giving yes, managers... Yes, yes the tools through education to detect signs of poor mental health and to put them in a position that they can refer them for the help and support that they need. Yeah, I, I that is that is significant. And look, you'll if you're a, if you're across what's happening in the workplace mental health space in the UK, there has been a bit of pushback from people and I can understand why on yeah. the context, on the, the, um, the idea of psychological um, first aid or mental health first aid. Yes. Um, that, I think, is one of the tools that you're talking about right now, which is to say, how do we empower our people? How do we give them the right set of skills, knowledge and confidence so they can have great conversations about mental health so that they can notice someone's not doing okay? that they can confidently ask that person how they're doing and push past the usual, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm well. Did you see the rugby on the weekend kind of a response where yeah. that person deflects you? That they can listen, listen hard, listen deeply without interrupting, without problem solving, that they can encourage that person to the right support for them and then check in meaningfully later on to see how that person is doing. 
that is the wheelhouse of mental health first aid and i see a big role for that and i push back quite strongly on people who say that's that's not enough it isn't enough if that's your only response but boy is it better than nothing absolutely is it better than nothing and i think that's the thing that people are missing you know there's a lot of consulting in this space a lot of training a lot of people coming up with new ideas that's great and you know people don't want um mental health first aid to be a tick box and i completely agree with that it's just the beginning so you know i I wouldn't say as a workplace yep you've got a a mental health and well-being policy yep you've got an anti-bullying policy tick 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 yep tick you've got an eap provider and now tick you've got um mental health first aiders if you take that approach i think it isn't deep enough and so it actually needs to be part of a holistic response within the workplace to mental health it's an empowerment piece and not just for leaders you know people leaders have got a special responsibility for their teammates but everyone has a role to play as i said before i completely agree that you know we can definitely set our leaders up for success within a workplace by giving them some appropriate training and support otherwise it's too awkward right you know like I'll, i'll never forget like you know there is i can't believe that i can't remember what that syndrome is where you like see somebody lying on the street and you just step over them because half a dozen people have done that before you <laughs> there is a there is a syndrome yeah. for that where you basically yeah. like well everyone else walked over them um i should have i should have remembered that but you know like uh, when i lost lucy taking you way back to melbourne australia you know within a couple of months of losing her i saw a workmate in my wider team who we're just sitting at a desk crying and before we lost lucy i would have thought that's awkward oh my goodness i'm what am i going to do what am i going to say i might say the wrong thing who am i to be getting up in her business i've got no idea what's going on here i'll just awkwardly walk yeah. past this and pretend i didn't see yeah. and how often is that happening in our workplaces because our people don't have the, the right level of confidence around this topic Absolutely. which is it doesn't need to be an awkward topic yeah. mental health can be positive mental health can be exciting mental health can be um whatever the opposite of awkward is <laughs> yeah and so you know I, I i i made a decision that day that i wouldn't walk over people who i thought might be struggling down in the pit for whatever reason right and we're not here to be clinical we're not here to diagnose people we're here to care and act care and act yeah absolutely i mean mental health should be embraced and I saw a, a film yesterday called A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe in. I don't know if you've seen it, but... I have, I have. Have you? It, it was the first time that I saw it yesterday. And I was watching it with my dad. And it was so well filmed. Russell Crowe must have done a lot of research into the mannerisms of someone suffering with paranoid schizophrenia. And the main point I took from that film was of positivity because this is a a maths professor who... So for the listeners, this is a maths professor who has his own demons in terms of voices. And there are three that he has in particular... And he overcomes them on his own with the support of his wife. And 
he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. And if that doesn't shine a positive light that you, you can be a success, even if you have a mental health problem, I genuinely don't know what else does. And there should be more things in the media like that that portray it in that way than the film way back when with Jack Nicholson in, which was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Those dated stereotypes are really unhelpful and unhealthy. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I recommend your listeners go and go and catch a beautiful mind. Because it's such and you know I think a brilliant film. Sorry, go on. Oh, you're making me want to rewatch it. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I think it's probably I think it's a good time, and we're 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 running close to time. I feel like I've talked your ear off, but but I just want to pause here and just say that if that there'll be people listening to this podcast and you're struggling privately with your mental health. Yeah. Get some help. It's okay to get some help. Yeah. If you're getting some help, if you're getting some extra support, some counselling, you're seeing a psychologist or a psychotherapist, you're taking some medication for your mental health condition, it's no drama. You're doing the right thing. Yeah. And our job as your workmates, as your friends and as your family is to stand with you absolutely you know you're doing the right thing but you don't need to do the right thing on your own and so and i think that that um it ties in a little bit um to to us creating safety within the workplace around mental health because if you haven't got safety around mental health then you won't have well-being yeah and if you don't have well-being you won't have a thriving, high-performing workforce. So it's um yeah. If you if you're getting some help, you know you're doing the right thing. Absolutely. And I would normally finish by asking a light-hearted question, which would be, "What would your dream job be and why?" But I feel that <laughs> it's probably appropriate to end it there because it's been such a very deep, involved, emotional episode that I hope people listening to it will take a lot from and would feel confident enough to think, well, I've actually got a friend who's struggling. I'll drop him a message and start the conversation to ask that person how they are, because you might think that they want to be alone, but that's the last thing that they want. They want, if you send that person a message who's suffering, you won't realise what that message will have done. It, it would have lifted them up, cheered them up, and then they can start a conversation. So true. Thank you, Steve. No problem. You're, you're very it's welcome. It's really special. Thank you. And that concludes today's episode with Grant Pritchard all the way from New Zealand discussing all things mental health within New Zealand. Feel free to leave a review if you enjoyed the episode and also like the LinkedIn and Instagram Legal Wolf pages to stay right up to date with the latest episodes along with some exciting content being announced shortly.
Thank you.